Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Today's text is going to come out of 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, I'm going to be using the New International Version. You can follow along in the booklet. It'll also be up here on the screen, or you can follow along on your, uh, in your Bible or tablet or phone. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first 22 verses in 2 Samuel 13. I'll also a couple of times mention a little bit about uh, the, the Hebrew to help us see a few things that are a little bit more difficult to see. So uh, we're going to be reading again 2 Samuel 13. I'm going to begin by reading the entire text. Uh, as always, I encourage us to hear. If God does not speak any other time today, he will speak now when I read his word. So please hear the word of God. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah. And David's brother Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat it from her hand. And David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, and made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom, so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and he bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house. 
a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. When I decided that we were going to be continuing our series on Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, a series we've called Game of Thrones, about 18 months or almost two years ago that we would be picking it back up at this time, I had no way of knowing that 2017 and 2018 were going to be the year of Me Too. Of course, the story we're reading right here seems like it's ripped from the headlines. Day after day, week after week, from Harvey Weinstein all the way down to Leslie Moonves this past week, the, the head of CBS, uh, there have been continuing stories and unravelings where men have sexually abused women. A, a few cases, there have been allegations that women have done so to men, but overwhelmingly it's been men uh, against women. And it's not just an entertainment. The two names I just mentioned are entertainment, but it's an entertainment there have been government figures. It's been in the church. In fact, it's been virtually everywhere in our culture. As women are speaking out against the sexual sin that has been done to them. And sometimes we can think this is a new thing because we haven't heard about it much in our culture. But our text today shows us this in fact goes back, this, this event happened 3,000 years ago. The issue that we now refer to as Me Too is not new, and in fact, it happened in David's house. This is a very tough topic, but the church needs to speak to tough topics, and it's one of the reasons I'm grateful when we teach through books like this. Chicken pastors like me can't avoid tough topics. We have to deal with it, because it's right there. It's in the text. And so, what does God say to us regarding this? Let's begin by looking at Amnon's horrible sin. In our story, there are four main characters. The, the characters are Amnon, David, Tamar, and Absalom. The order in Hebrew, because this is actually an entire section built around Absalom, the order in Hebrew is actually Absalom is first. It really says, it came, uh, over time it came to pass that Absalom, the son of David, loved uh, uh had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and she was loved by Amnon. So there's really a different order. It really puts Absalom first, because this is going to be the story of Absalom. He's going to be named over a hundred times in the coming chapter. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be dealing a lot with Absalom, and this is where we begin to see the, the root of what's going to ultimately lead to rebellion and death and all kinds of problems in the kingdom that's going on here. But all of this, it begins with is a, a, an affair within David's family. In the chapter that we're looking at, in the portion we're looking at, 20 times the words brother and sister are used. There's no getting away from the fact this is something going on in David's family. And I remind us, you know, we spent four weeks going through David and Bathsheba and Nathan's rebuke and the Psalms that come out of that. If you remember in Nathan's rebuke, the Lord told David, your sin's forgiven, but the effects of that sin are going to continue to unravel, and they're going to unravel in your family. This is the beginning of that prophecy coming to fulfillment. And, if, and in reality, these are going to spin out for the rest of 2 Samuel. David's going to reap what he has sown. I'm not going to talk about it much this morning. I will come back briefly, but I want to remind you, one thing we learn out of this, do not think sin can be trifled with. It cannot. You have an enemy, I have an enemy, and he is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And it is happening here. It's unraveling in David's family. Now, what's going on is Amnon is lusting after his sister Tamar. She's actually his half-sister. And notice it tells us in verse 1 that he fell in love with his beautiful sister Tamar. But what's really being talked about here is that Amnon, who is David's oldest, and the apparent heir, he's the one who it appears is going to sit on the throne and fulfill the Davidic covenant that we looked at, that God was going to keep David's heirs on the throne, and eventually Messiah was going to come through that line. Amnon's the one who should be in that line. And Amnon, the first thing we're learning here, is in the grip of lust 
regarding his half-sister Tamar. Now verse 1 says love, but as we're going to see, it's really lust. He's mistaking it. He thinks he's in love, but what he's actually in is the grip of lust. She's his sister, but he is not looking at her as a sister. And in fact, what he sees, notice where it says she's beautiful. That should remind us, the writer in 2 Samuel, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is very careful in his words. And the last time we noticed that a woman was called beautiful, who was it? Bathsheba. See, Absalom and Amnon are chips off the old block. They have learned by watching their father. And David looked at a woman, Bathsheba, and didn't see the woman. All he saw was whether he thought she was beautiful or not. And Amnon is doing the same thing right now. He's acting like David did with Bathsheba. And if you want proof that this is not love, notice the final phrase. It seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Does that sound like love? Love's not looking for what it can do to someone. It would be looking for what it could give. But Amnon is just consumed with lust for Tamar. And I won't put the verses up. You can look there in the handout. But verses 3 to 10, it says that he he actually was feeling like he was almost ill. And one of his friends notices and says, what's going on, Amnon? And Amnon tells him what it is. And this friend says, well, here's a ruse. Go lie down in bed. Act like you're sick. David will show up. And when he comes, you ask David to have Tamar come down and make some food for you. Now, how many of you thought it was kind of creepy that the son would say, I need my sister to come and make some food and then feed it to me? Sounds a little creepy, doesn't it? It's even creepier, actually. I was, I was looking at the Hebrew the other day, and it's weird because the word bread normally is lechem, like Bethlehem is house of bread. It's not in this case. It's a word from heart. And one of the commentators said something, and I thought, you're reading into it. And I looked up in the lexicon. The word here is actually, they, they translated it as heart-shaped pastries. Dad, would you have my sister come and make some little heart-shaped pastries for me? David is being struck stupid. He ought to see what's going on. But David's own sin has blinded him to what's going on in his own family. And he doesn't notice. And he, he gives in to this ruse. And so Amnon here, if you notice, when I was reading that, it should have struck you how creepy it is. Amnon's lying in his bed, lusting after his sister as she's making food. And then he's wanting her to come to his bed and feed him by her hand. If that strikes you as weird, it ought to. And if that strikes you as something is wrong, it ought to. And it should have struck David that way. The language that's used, notice, is just like David and Bathsheba. Remember, David was lying in his bed, and then he got up and he looked and he saw Bathsheba. Now Amnon is lying in his bed, and then he's looking and he's seeing his sister Tamar. He's watching her, and then he sends everyone away because he does not want any witnesses. And he calls her to his bed just like David did with Bathsheba. The terms are being presented because the same sin David did is now being repeated in his own house. Now, when he does this and he brings her to his bed, Tamar, we wonder how is she going to respond to this? And I want you to hear this this morning. The text is unequivocal. Tamar is righteous in everything she says and does. This is not a problem with Tamar. This is a problem with Absalom. Notice in verses 11 to 13, she takes it to him to eat and he grabs her and says, come to bed with me, my sister. He's trying to lure her into bed, but she righteously refuses. And she begins by saying, no, my brother, don't force me. She's telling him two things right up front. If you do this, it's gonna be forcing me because I do not agree to this. And secondly, If you do this, I'm reminded, you're my brother. You're my brother. And then on top of that, she gives him three reasons not to do this. She says, do not do this wicked thing. A thing like this should not be done in Israel. And she uses an unusual word for wicked. It's not the usual Hebrew word. 
it's all Hebrew words are built on three letters, and these three letters we would pronounce Nabal. Nabal. Anybody remember a guy named Nabal? The wicked fool David had dealt with? That's the word she uses. And she says, don't do this wicked thing. Shouldn't be done in Israel. You would be acting Nabal. You'd be acting in that foolish manner. Secondly, think for a second, Amnon. I know you're in the, in the grip of lust here, but think for a moment. What is going to happen to me if you do this? I will be disgraced. I will be left desolate. Don't do that to me. And you are going to be like a wicked fool, Nabal, in Israel. Amnon, we've all heard the story. We've heard from our father about this wicked, foolish man, Nabal. Don't act like him. Do not be that way. And then thirdly, she says, look, if you just go ask David, our father, he'll let me marry you, and then this can all be done rightly. Now, that's actually against the law in Israel. They were not allowed to be married. We don't know whether it would have been that way or not. It may be that she's just trying to give a ruse to get out of there and say, let's just go ask David, and then she can say, I got away, and I'm never going to be alone with you again. But in, in every point, she's being presented as the opposite of Amnon. He is a wicked fool acting on his basest emotions and lust. She, on the other hand, is showing wisdom as opposed to foolishness, and she is a pure virgin. The text describes her as uh, later on. And so the text is letting us know if evil happens, it is Amnon's fault, period. There's no shared blame. It is Amnon's fault. One would hope at this point, like when David was in his sin with Bathsheba, and you remember time after time we hoped David would stop and turn back, but he kept pressing forward. One would hope Amnon would come to his senses, but that's not what happens. And one of the saddest verses in Scripture, we read in verse 14, he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Amnon is in the grip of sin. And he will not listen to reason. He will not hear a word of righteousness. He has become a slave to sin. So he forces himself on her. The language is quite strong. And he rapes her. So notice here, despite his claim to love, he said that he loved her, but despite his claim to love, this sexual act is simply a raw display of power. One person taking advantage of another person who is vulnerable. And that is always the way sexual abuse is. It always tries to mirror itself, always tries to cover itself and say that it's something that it's not. But at base, it is simply a wicked uh, exercise of raw power against someone who is weak and vulnerable. And if you notice in the text, you see all the differences between love and lust in bold relief. We talked about some of these when we looked at the root vices earlier this year. Love is the giving of oneself entirely. Lust is the taking of physical pleasure from another person. Love is about relationship. Lust is about self-gratification. Love is content. Lust never can reach contentment. It always craves more. By its very nature, when lust is fed, it only grows in hunger. Love makes us more fully human. Lust dehumanizes us and others. And notice there that Tamar's name is not mentioned in this verse. Okay, Tamar is not mentioned. He didn't listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he raped her. There's a reason. You're seeing it from Ammon's perspective. She's ceasing to be human. She is merely something to be used. And that's what lust does. Love protects the weak and vulnerable. Lust exploits them. So that's exactly what Amnon has done. Now what we're going to ask at this point is, so what happens to Tamar after this? One would hope, I wish I wouldn't have to say Tamar too. I wish the response 
from King David and his family would be a godly response. But it's actually not. Tamar is left desolate. Notice it begins with Amnon's reaction to Tamar. We read those terrible verses in verse 15 where it says he hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. His lust turns to hate, and the language is a totality of hate. He despises her with everything in her, in himself. After he has used her, he casts her away like she's a piece of trash. That's what he does. Notice again, no, her name is not mentioned. He refuses to name her. He's named her every time before, but he will not name her because it's showing this from Amnon's eyes, just like we saw 2 Samuel 11 was told from David's perspective. And you remember, he stopped naming Bathsheba because he was using her. Well, the same thing is going on here with Amnon. In Amnon's eyes, she has ceased to be a real person. And so when he sends her away, he says, get this woman out of here. Get this woman out of here. And then he has the door bolted behind her. See, this is the end result of lust and sexual abuse. It attempts to leave the victim nameless, forlorn of hope, or even personhood. That is what flows out of it. That is the desire at the end. Make no mistake, it wants the person left as if they were not a person. This is what our sin does. When we want to do great violence and it is true in sexual abuse, but it's true in all kinds of other things. How did we justify slavery in this country? You simply say they're not really people. How do we justify killing in the womb? They're not real people. How is sexual slavery around the world justified? You define them as if they are not real people. Power takes control and says you are not really a person. And so Amnon will no longer even name her. And he will not listen to her plea. He won't hear it. He even has the door locked behind her because what he's saying is, I don't ever want to see you again. He wants no chance of her return because to hear her name or see her face is a reminder of his own wickedness, of his own foolishness. And he doesn't want to face that. So he locks her away. That's what abusers do. They don't want to face their own sin. They want to justify themselves. It can't be my problem. It must be the other person's problem. And that's precisely what he does to Tamar. And abusers continue to victimize the other person long after the initial abuse is finished to keep them under control and to justify their own behavior. And friends, this pattern has been repeated time and time and time again. And we need to hear and understand that. Now, here is Tamar's reaction to Amnon's sin. In verse 19, we've seen what Amnon does. One would hope here, against hope, that somehow Tamar is going to come out of this, but the picture is so terrible to watch. But this is the result of what Amnon has done to her. Notice in verse 19, she takes several actions. She puts ashes on her head. She tears her ornamented robe. She goes away weeping and mourning. This is all signs of mourning. She is saying, my life has been shattered, is what she's doing. And then notice, it's even got the phrase, she puts her hand on her head. That phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture, and we actually have ancient artifacts. That was a picture, I'm being carried away into exile. I'm being carried away from everything I have known, everything I have loved. My life is being left desolate. And that's what Tamar does. She goes away with her hand on her head. She's saying, he has shattered me. Despite his claim to love, uh, he has destroyed what she has done. She has left a desolate woman. Her sense of self-worth is shattered. Her dignity is devastated. And I want you to understand, this is true in spite of the fact that Tamar did nothing wrong. And the text is going out of its way to show us how much she did nothing wrong, and yet she is left, as it were, imprisoned. And one way, this is where I'm going to bring up a little Hebrew, you can't quite 
tell as much in some of the English translations is this entire story is cast in the same terms as Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's reminding us of that. Notice that Amnon, like Potiphar's wife, says, come to bed with me. Same phrase is used. Come to bed with me. Tamar, like Joseph, says, no, this would be wicked. This would be evil. Let's not do this. Um, Tamar and Joseph both give reasons why we should not do this. Let me explain why this would be wicked. Please listen to reason. Don't give in to your lust. Both Amnon and Potiphar's wife, at the end of the episode, how do they view the other person? They now hate them, and they want to see them punished. They want to see them imprisoned. But then the last thing that is so clear about it is, remember Tamar is wearing, we're told, an ornamented robe. That phrase is used two places in all of the Bible. It's the robe that Jacob gave to Joseph that was torn and rent when his brothers sold him into slavery. And it's used here for Tamar. It's used nowhere else in all the Bible. The Scripture is telling us that Amnon is acting like wicked Potiphar's wife, and Tamar is like righteous Joseph. And she is ending up being cast away into slavery by her brother, and she is ending up desolate and devastated and imprisoned, just like Joseph did for trying to refuse the wicked desires of another. So despite her innocence, Tamar suffers devastation and desolation because of her abuse at the hands of Amnon. Friends, it is not as simple as just get over it. It doesn't work that way. People want to say, I'm going to keep coming back to this. The church today far too often wants to give two Bible verses and call me in the morning and everything will be okay. When your life is shattered by evil and wickedness from someone else, it does not work that way. It's not that simple. And what Tamar needed was someone to come to her rescue. But what Tamar got was Absalom the rebel and David who was paralyzed by, her own, by his own sin. Notice Absalom's reaction. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, and he actually uses a term of derision because we're seeing here Absalom simply views Amnon as a rival. Absalom wants to be the king, and Amnon's in his way. And that's what Absalom's concerned about, not Tamar. And so notice, has, has that, that little Amnon, is what he actually says in the Hebrew, has that little Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. Can I tell you that's the last thing Tamar needs to do right then, is be quiet? That is not, she needs to express what has happened to her. She needs to name the evil. But the one who ought to be rescuing her tells her, shh, 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 shh. be quiet. And then he says, he's your brother, don't take this thing to heart. I wish Tamar had punched him in the mouth. Don't take this to heart. I was abused. I was violated by someone who ought to have protected me. Don't take it to heart. And I wish the church had not said the same thing to women who had suffered sexual abuse. But they have. They have. Sadly, and this continues 3,000 years later, family and friends often compound the harm of the abuse, either through minimization, don't take it to heart, ignorance or neglect. They, they don't understand that. And, and so we just, can, can we just get past this? But for the other person, they're living in devastation. They're living in exile from all they had known before. Now I will say, at least Absalom does take Tamar into the house to care for. But notice, it tells us she remained in his house a desolate woman. That phrase is used for cities after everybody's been carried away into exile. 
and it's empty. It's ruined. It's burned down. It's destroyed. That is how Tamar lived. Her existence became almost a living death. And what I hate to say is that's because there was virtually no other way out for her in their culture. Because of what Amnon had done, though she was just, though she was righteous, though she was innocent, because of what Amnon has done, she was going to suffer for the rest of her life. That was often the way it was in the culture. Now, one would hope David, the the, uh, ancestor of the Messiah, the righteous king, is going to come to her rescue. But notice what we read in verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Should David be furious? Yes, he should be furious. That, that's actually correct. Uh, I, I joked with Seamus when he first started dating my daughter that if he ever did anything I did not like, I would polish off my Marine Corps skills, get my three sons, and they would never find the parts of his body. Okay? And then I told him, I'm kidding, but not really. David's right to be furious. This is his daughter. But notice what the text doesn't say. What does David do? Nothing. Nothing. In fact, interestingly enough, uh, he's apparently unwilling to deal with Amnon's sin and help Tamar. This is because it appears throughout the story from here on out, David appears to be an overly indulgent father. He never confronts his children in their sin any of them. When Absalom is rebelled, almost had David killed, David is more concerned that Absalom stay alive, and Joab has to rebuke him and say, you'd rather all the people who are loyal to you be dead as long as Absalom was still alive. David is an indulgent father, and he gets his sons in trouble. But on top of that, it appears he's more concerned about Amnon and the succession and what's going on than he is about his own daughter. Interestingly, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible, and in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it has a phrase that is added here that the, that the Hebrew text we normally follow doesn't have, which says that David, uh, when King David heard this, he was furious, and then it adds this phrase, but he would not hurt Amnon because he was his eldest son and he loved him. See, David's thinking about the wrong thing. David's thinking, we got to have a dynasty here, and it's supposed to be Amnon. So this, is, this infuriates me. I'm very upset. But, see, that but is the problem. There isn't a but. The issue is Tamar's been devastated, period. There isn't a but that follows that. But I've got to worry about this. The second David turns to that, he's in trouble. And the reality is that He's so worried about this dynasty. He's so worried about trying to keep peace. And in actuality, what he's doing by his inaction is he's creating the very problems that are going to come. If he had simply dealt with the sin, all the problems that are coming would not have happened. And so, ironically, This is the same exact thing that Eli the priest had all the way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel, for which he was judged, and which Samuel had with his own sons, which is why God allowed them to have a king in the first place. And now David, who's going to lead a dynasty, is repeating the same exact sin. He's not following on. He has not learned. And so the final sordid state is given to us in verses 20 to 22, where we read, Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Tamar is left abused, bereft, desolate, and abandoned by her abuser, her father, and society at large. Nobody seems to care about Tamar. David is furious in verse 21, but incapable of doing anything because, of course, one of David's problems is how do you confront in your son his behavior that is mimicking your own behavior? Very difficult to do. And thirdly, uh, Absalom is seething with rage, we're told in verse 22, at Amnon, ready to take matters into his own hands. But at least, uh, you know, he's trying to take care of Tamar, but he's seething over this, and what he's really intent on is how am I going to work this to get the throne? 
And David is just in his mind proving himself to not be a worthy leader. It's certainly not going to be Amnon, so i got to start setting things into motion to take the throne myself. And that's going to spin out for chapters and chapters into the future. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean to us today? Let's come forward to our time. I want to speak briefly to three distinct people or groups. First, to all of us, very briefly, is a word of warning to all of us about the dangers of sin. I want to remind us, we covered this in depth with David and Bathsheba, but the horrible nature of sin is seen throughout this passage. Amnon's sin of rape is an unthinkable evil. It's something that ought never to have happened. But notice, once again, the sin doesn't even end with the rape, but cascades out into the future. In Tamar's life, in Amnon's life, in Absalom's life, in David's life, everybody around it, this is going to continue to cascade out. That is the nature of sin. And notice, the writer put it all in terms that go right back to 2 Samuel 11 with David and Bathsheba. Because make no mistake, the roots of this go all the way back to David's sin with Bathsheba. Amnon's following David in his sexual sin, as kids often do. Absalom is going to follow David in murder out of that same event, as kids would often do. Sexual sin and the sword have been unleashed by David's own sin because, friends, we reap what we sow. So I want to remind you of the phrase of John Owen, and we'll move on. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. There, it will not barter with you and I. It will not make compromise. Satan and sin are out to steal, kill, destroy. Our culture will tell you you can play with it. We're in Me Too because our culture has told people that. It does not work that way. Secondly, I want to speak a word to the church, particularly regarding sexual abuse. The Me Too moments crashed into our culture right now, and the church is not immune to this problem. You realize if you've been awake at all in recent years, that the Roman Catholic Church and the hierarchy and all the things that started with the, the sex abuse scandal being uncovered by the Boston Globe over 20 years ago when people thought it was going to be done. And we just had the huge case in Pennsylvania with all of the people who were abused. And the church covered it up. But do not sit here and think, well, I'm not Roman Catholic. We're an evangelical church. Friends, the evangelical church over the same period of time from Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart all the way down to right now with Bill Hybels and Paige Patterson and other men whose theology we may even respect have been caught and have been guilty. And over and over and over again, the church has spoken to the person who has been abused and has said, don't take this thing to heart. And we have put other concerns ahead. Even if we were angry at the perpetrator, we said, but if we deal with this, what's going to be the reputation to our church? That, that would hurt the gospel. Friends, you know what hurts the church and the gospel? is covering sin. That's exactly what hurts the gospel. God forbid, but should I ever follow in those tracks, do not put the reputation of this church or the kingdom or the gospel ahead of dealing with me in my sin. That is a fool's errand. No one is above being called to account. But time after time after time, people have sat there and said, oh, he wouldn't have done that. Yes, he would. You might be surprised what pastors have done over and over again. Our first responsibility as the church is to hear, to grieve with, and to comfort those who've been sexually abused. 
our first responsibility is not what we've done over and over again, which is to try and figure out how we're going to do damage control. That is not our first response. Our first response is to make sure that the person who has had their life shattered by the evil of another is cared for. And woe to the church that does not respond righteously that way. And so we have to understand we should not add further hurt by in any way blaming the one who's been abused or defending the perpetrator. I tell you time and time again, you see where a woman came forward this summer and said, when I reported at my conservative, solid evangelical seminary that I had been raped on a date, I was in trouble because I had violated a dating rule. I wish I was making that up, but I'm not. And the woman is told, well, if you hadn't dressed that way, said that, put your... That is all foolishness. There's no excuse. There was no excuse for Amnon, and there's no excuse for the men who have done that. Or if it were a woman doing it, there would be no excuse for her. We need to understand sexual abuse can leave wounds that take a long, long time to heal. The point of this story is not, and Tamar should have gotten over it. That's not the point. The point is people should have cared for Tamar. They should have stood there and been by her, but they were not. And we can't tell people when someone's life is shattered, telling them, get over it. And I have heard this. And even, I remember a few years ago, I was ministering in a situation where someone had lost a child. And I had warned other people around them, in their pain, they are going to say things that are not true regarding God, regarding life, and they don't need a theology lesson at that moment. They need you to hold them. And then some of the very people I had told called me back and were saying, yeah, but they said this thing. I already told you, their pain is screaming out. They lost a child. I'm not going to write a theology text out of what they're saying right now, but I hear their pain. Can we be with them and shepherd them and not tell them, get over it? Get over it. The church needs to understand it's not enough to be angry at the perpetrator. We have to show deep empathy to the victim. We have to walk with the victim. We have to listen to the victim. Now, the second responsibility the church has is to expose, confront, and deal with the perpetrator. It's not enough to sit idly by. It's not enough to look and say, well, they shouldn't have done that, but we got our reasons. Again, the second we get to but, we have lost it. We're we're off the path. There is no but. It needs to be dealt with, and we have to do everything within our power to ensure justice is done. Which, let me say, by the way, and this is important to understand, if there is abuse, am I or any of the other elders qualified to try and investigate and determine what went on? No. If you have a question about Greek, come see me. If you want to know how to investigate sexual abuse claims, I am not your guy nor is anybody else here in the church. There are people that that is their job, and we go to them. We talk to them. It is not, let's just keep this within the church. The church isn't qualified to do that. But time and time again, I've watched the church try and do that exact thing. Not our job. To not deal with the abuser is to multiply the sin and its effect. And we've seen this time and again. So I encourage you, remember that in what we're doing. And we're not supposed to desire, or or no supposed desire of ours to let something harm the church or bring down the gospel or hurt the cause of the kingdom can ever cause us to act in some other way. What God is after is us acting in justice towards the sin and mercy towards the person who has been abused. Finally, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table, I want to give a word of hope to those who've been abused. There is no question 
in a group this size and those who are going to be watching on Facebook or listening, there are those who are listening that have been sexually abused and you bear the scars of that abuse. I want to begin first off by saying I am so sorry. No human being ever should be treated that way. No one. And if the church did not help you, if the church acted like Absalom or David, I am so sorry. We failed you. We did not represent Christ. Please forgive us. I also, in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, I do not, please listen, those of you who have heard me preach many times, I, I don't say in the authority of Christ and all that kind of stuff, I don't think I've ever said it. It's not a common thing. So, so hear me when I say this. In Christ's authority, I want to say to anybody who's been abused, it is not your fault. You did not deserve this. Do not listen to the abuser. Do not listen to others. Do not listen to the enemy of your soul. You did not deserve this. It is okay for you to grieve. It is okay for you to understand true healing takes time, and it's probably going to take a lot of counseling to try and go through, and that is okay. That is not a sign that you are weak. It is not a sign that you are immature. It is not a sign that you're not just getting with it, that you're not just getting over it. It's a sign you're a human being who has been shattered and devastated by the evil works of another. But I do want to say to you, Jesus is here to bring healing and hope to you. I hate that in this story, it says that Amnon had the door bolted behind her. And the picture is almost, she's not only bolted out of Amnon, and he's bolted in himself now, but he's, he's in essence bolting her into prison just like Joseph was. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus wants to set the captive free. That's not a statement that it's easy, but he wants to bring healing to your spirit, to your emotions, to your mind, to your relationships, to all of you. Every aspect of you has been touched by this, and he wants to bring healing. In short, you remember I said, Tamar took actions like somebody going into exile. You remember when the people of Israel were in exile, God spoke to them and said, I'm here and I want you to have a hope and a future. In fact, I want to give you shalom. I want to restore you. God speaks and says the same thing to anybody. And this is true whether it is sexual abuse, some other kind of abuse, something else that someone has perpetrated upon you that has left you feeling like you are imprisoned or in exile, God wants to set you free. That is the good news of the gospel. Now again, that does not mean, well, you heard my teaching, so get over it. It's not the way it works. But it does mean that Jesus wants to walk with you through it. Jesus himself took our flesh endured our pain and suffering, and walks with us through every valley. He has borne your brokenness so that you might receive his healing. And friends, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to come to the table. We're going to come to this table of hope and healing. And this morning, as we do so, I want to encourage you, we're going to do something a little different as we come to the Lord's table. Normally, we focus a lot on our own sin. We should always bring our sin to the Lord. But this table is a sacrament. That means Jesus meets us in a special way here. We don't have to get strange in understanding what that means. He meets us in a special way here. And I want to encourage you this morning, wherever you're broken, wherever you're feeling exiled, Jesus wants to meet you. And he wants to speak to you personally as his child. And he wants to restore you. He does not want you living in shame. 
He does not want you bearing a false guilt. He does not want you being imprisoned by the enemy of your soul. And so this morning, I want us to open up and give that thing over to him and then receive from him full healing. If you're a visitor this morning, you don't have to be a member of our church. You can participate with us. You just have to be a believer, which means you understand the gospel. And the gospel is what we sang and what was talked about earlier, what Tanya even mentioned in praying uh, for our missionary this month, which is the gospel's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done for us. That he lived for us, he died for us, he's been raised for us, and he intercedes for us now. All I have is sin, but he has sufficient righteousness to take all my sin away. If you believe that, come to the table this morning. Give your grief and your pain and your sorrow to him and receive healing. I also remind us that we do have a gluten-free option. If you are someone whose body struggles with gluten, if you just raise your hands in a moment, we will bring that to you. So friends, let's come to this table of healing and hope. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would meet us at your table this morning. We ask that you would restore hope and that you would give healing we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pass out the elements. As we do so, we encourage you to please reflect. If you have sin, confess it to the Lord. Give it over. Other than that, uh, let's take, if the Lord's spoken to you on anything where you feel like you've been through something like what Tamar has, or if you know someone who has been through it, ask the Lord to minister to you, to give you hope and healing in that area. Lord, you gave bread as the symbol of your body. For like the bread, your body was broken. Though you were innocent, you bore the effects of human sin, suffering, violence, abuse, and scorn. You were righteous, but you suffered injustice. You were good and merciful, but you suffered wickedness and cruelty. Your innocence was stolen and broken, shattered by the intent and actions of evil men. But you did this to take our sin, shame, and pain to yourself at the cross. You suffered in body and soul so that we might be healed and made whole. So we give you our sin, our suffering, and our shame both the things we have done ourselves and the things we have suffered at the hand of others. And Lord, we do this trusting you to heal all that is broken. Take and eat. Jesus, your blood was shed by evil men doing violence. Like a lamb, you were silent before those who sheared away your very life. They thought your death would be the end, and they would be victorious. But by your blood, you have won the victory, defeating Satan and vanquishing sin and its effects. You have redeemed us, forgiving our sins, healing our wounds, restoring what had been lost. By your blood, you have freed us from sin's penalty and power, from the prison of shame and fear. You have set us free 
that we might live in the joy of being yours. So we give you thanks for the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Father, by your creative power, you made all things. And through your Son, you have begun the work of making all things new again. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us to live free from the power of sin, from the prison of pain, and from the bondage of shame. May we taste the glory of the coming age so that we may live faithfully and be agents of healing in our broken world. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If we can go ahead and stand, we're going to be having our benediction in just a moment. Hannah's wanting to share something. I'm a good little Christian girl. I don't have much experience with this topic personally, except... Tamar was left desolate, disgraced, and for all we know, unhealed and unheard her whole life, except it's in the Bible. She could have left Amnon's house and said nothing, ripped nothing. She did that to proclaim the sin that it happened to her. She knew what she risked. She knew what she was asking from men who failed her. But because she spoke up, this story is in our Bible. Her testimony survived and has been preaching to women through the centuries ever since. The Me Too movement is not just about how we need to protect, to hear, and to heal the women and men who are victims of abuse, but also to speak to those victims and say, there is a use and a purpose greater than your experience, that your experience has given you strength, not just violation. One of the frustrating things about being a good church girl, I've seen a lot of emphasis placed on preserving our processes, our reputation, our, our decently and in order thing. They're understandable reasons. But one of the good things about that, being a good church girl, is I have seen this situation follow me through four or five different churches I've been in over my life. And I want to tell you, whether you are the victim or the abuser, it is your testimony that contributes to the kingdom. It is how you overcame your lust, how you overcame your sin, how you overcame your violation, your, your fear, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to force it. You also don't have to fear it. God can and he will enable you to grow his kingdom from the very thing that we fear exiles us from. That's the story of Joseph. That's the story of Tamar. That's the gospel. I, I also want to say in closing, let's stand. We're going to do the benediction. But as we do so, I want to say, if anyone here, if this has stirred up, difficulty or things and you and you need to talk I want to encourage you to please get a hold of me or one of the elders we will be glad to talk with you 
to work through it, even to help you find other folks. Uh, God does want to bring healing. I'm going to do a benediction out of Isaiah 61. This is the words that were spoken regarding Jesus and his ministry. It's the very words he spoke the first time he ministered in public. So I want you to receive the blessing so that we can go and give the blessing. May the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord anoint you, binding up your broken heart, releasing you from darkness and prison, and bestowing on you a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise to replace a spirit of despair. And may he anoint you to proclaim the good news and the time of God's favor to everyone you meet. Go forth in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.